You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. A good name is to be chosen rather than riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent see danger and hides himself, but the simple go out and suffer for it. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. Train up a child in a way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Whoever sows, sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his furry will, will fail. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Drive out the scoffer, and the strifer will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the word of the traitor. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you just heard the passage of scripture we're going to be in today, and I love the way Al just read it, taking his time with each verse, because that is how you should read Proverbs. There is so much going on in each verse from the book of Proverbs. If you were not here back early on this month, July 4th, we introduced the book of Proverbs, looking at Proverbs chapters 1 through 9. And what we see in the beginning of those first nine chapters is there's a case being made that we should choose wisdom and not choose foolishness or folly, that wisdom is the way of life and foolishness is the way of death. Well, then the remaining 22 chapters of Proverbs that come after those first nine chapters tell us, so how do we live wisely? And they give us scenario after scenario, case after case of how to live wisely, it's not gonna cover every single possible thing in life, but it covers quite a bit. And each verse, most every single verse, will stand alone on its own as a point of wisdom for us to apply to our lives. Just as the 13 verses that we're gonna look at today. So today we're actually going to have what I will call a 13-point sermon. You've probably heard of three-point sermons or four-point sermons. Each of these verses is its own point, and you're going to get a 13-point sermon. And if you stick around till the very end, you'll see how that all will actually equal one point. All right. So feel free to go ahead and turn to Proverbs chapter 22, and we're going to read through each of these verses, and we're going to take our time with each verse. In Proverbs chapter 22, starting in verse 1, it says this, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, 
and favor is better than silver or gold. Well, what this verse is saying, it's not actually about your actual name, it's about your reputation. Your reputation matters more than your wealth. And how do you have a good reputation? Well, in the context of the book of Proverbs, you have a good reputation by walking wisely. And you will have a bad reputation by doing things foolishly. And so your reputation, it matters more than your wealth. And so if you are aspiring for something in life, it's not to say that wealth is is bad and you shouldn't have wealth, but you should care more about your good name, your reputation, than you do about making that million dollars, making that billion dollars, whatever it may be. The next verse then says this, continuing on a similar theme, the rich and the poor meet together The Lord is maker of them all. And so we see in this verse, again, there's a context of wealth here, the rich and the poor, but the Lord is maker of them all. What what is this verse saying? Well, what it's saying is that in the eyes of God, in God's economy, our personal possessions don't really matter that much. When we die and we stand before the Lord God, whether you're rich or poor, it's not gonna matter a whole lot to him how much you made in this life how many possessions you left behind because you don't get to take them with you. In God's economy, your personal wealth really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Again, this is not a verse that says being wealthy is bad. That's not the point. The point is to, to write our understanding that in the context of our lives, what really matters is not our wealth. Verse three then says this, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Well, this term prudence, it goes hand in hand with wisdom. Uh, Someone who is prudent will see uh, crooked, perverse things and choose not to engage in those things, will choose not to talk in that way. We call someone who's extremely prudent, we have a name for that, we call that person a prude. That tends to be a negative context, but scripture treats that as actually a really good thing. If you see perverse things and you say, I'm not gonna talk like that, I'm not gonna walk like that, I'm not gonna act like that, your prudence is actually a safeguard against a path of destruction. The path that we see in the end of this verse, the simple go on and suffer for it. This is what was explained to us in Proverbs one through nine, that the simple, the foolish go down this path of destruction in choosing foolish ways. The path of perversion is a path of destruction. This fourth verse then says this. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. So two things being said here, humility and the fear of the Lord. What is humility? Humility is a term we we use often But the ultimate understanding of humility is when we recognize who we are in relationship to an almighty God. That God in his power, God in his greatness, God in his majesty, that he exists and we exist. And in our understanding of who God is and who we are, we should be deeply humbled. And the fact that that almighty, all-powerful God sees us watches us, has his eye on you, knows your innermost thoughts, cares about the plan of your life, has a plan for your life. That should be deeply humbling to us. 
And with that humility and understanding of who God is should come this next thing that is said, and fear of the Lord. And we use that term throughout scripture, the fear of the Lord, that that, um, expression, the fear of the Lord. Do we really understand what that means? Especially as 21st century Westerners, we don't typically think in those sort of terms. We don't think of God as someone who we should fear. God's our friend, God's our father, God's our our ever-present help in times of trouble. He loves us. We, We focus on all those details. Why would we fear God? Why would we ever fear God? Well, there's a a book written by C.S. Lewis called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a a scene in that book that I think captures how we should understand this. The, The kids who've gone into the wardrobe, the brothers and sisters, they have found themselves in the company of two beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, And these beavers can talk, if you haven't read the book. Uh, All the animals, actually, in Narnia can talk. And they're having a conversation with the beavers about Aslan. Aslan is the king. He's the king of the wood. He's the lion, the great lion. And they've just found out about this Aslan. And they know that they're about to go meet him. And Lucy asks the question. She says, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, and he says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. When we understand God, we recognize that he has a rule and authority over this universe. He has a system and a way of things that we are supposed to live within. And when we go outside of his way of things, when we go against God, we will reap the consequences for that. And being the almighty, all-powerful God, the wrath of God is not something we want. We do not want to reap that. We should have a healthy fear of the Lord God that recognizes when we cross him, we will reap the judgment for that. But he is good. He's not some capricious God who just wants to harm us. He cares for us and he does take care of us. Verse six or verse five then says this, thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. This is kind of the other side of of what verse three had said. Now we're seeing the crooked, the perverse, the twisted, the one who, who takes what is good and twists it into something evil, the one who takes what is evil and twists it into something good or supposedly good. The perverse is on a path of thorns, on a path of snares, on a path of destruction. So what what does it mean to be crooked or perverse? Well, that is to to take um, anything that will, will draw us away from the goodness of God, take us and draw us away from the truth of God, corrupt our minds and our hearts, and start to give in to it just a little bit, and then a little bit more. And this is why we as Christians need to safeguard against perversion in a very perverse culture, in a a culture that wants to loudly produce greater and greater perversions in its people. We need to safeguard. If you are a husband or a wife, you need to safeguard perversion from entering into your marriage. If you are a parent, you need to safeguard perversion entering into the lives of your children. If you are an individual Christian, you need to safeguard perversion entering into your life because just a little bit of perversion will lead to greater 
and greater perversions, and the path that it goes down is the path of destruction. As a pastor, you have no idea how many marriages I've had insights into seeing that were destroyed, and it all began began with a little perversion that entered in. In verse 6, it says this, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, you don't have to believe the words of the Bible to to see that this makes sense. If you raise a child a certain way, they're they're gonna, for the most part, stay in line with the way they've been raised. If you raise a child to really respect their education, for example, from the time they are in kindergarten, you're teaching them this is important, in first grade, this is important, and all the way up to their senior year of high school, they've been taught how important their education is very likely that that child will desire to go to college without much prompting. If you teach a child a certain thing as they grow up, they're gonna stick with that in their older years. It's not a guarantee. I know plenty of people who've raised kids a certain way and watched them go a total different direction. But generally speaking, you raise a child a certain way and they will stick with the way you've raised them. So how do we raise a child in the way they should go? What does scripture tell us about how we should raise a child. Throughout scripture, there's actually quite a bit on how to raise children. I wanna take you real quickly. You don't have to turn there. I'm I'm just gonna read it. It's from Ephesians chapter six. Paul has his own little commentary on this verse. In Ephesians chapter six, verse four, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I think this can apply to mothers as well. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's two parts to that. First, don't provoke your children to anger. What does that mean? It doesn't mean never do anything that your kids don't like. All right, that's not what it means. If you want your kids to learn how to eat vegetables, you're probably gonna make them upset at some point in time. Most kids don't like vegetables very much. Uh, If you want to teach your kid to do things that they don't naturally want to do, you're probably gonna upset them a little here and there. So when it says, don't provoke your children to anger, what it's really saying is don't abuse your position as an adult, as a parent, don't abuse that position of power that you have over a child to provoke them senselessly, needlessly. Use that position to instruct them, to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what does that mean, the discipline of the Lord? Well, the discipline of the Lord is shown to us throughout scripture. Why does God discipline? He disciplines when people, nations, groups sin against him. And so a parent who wants to raise their child within the counsel of scripture will raise their child to not sin. And when they do sin, they will be disciplined for that sin by the parent. That is what scripture advises. But we're also to raise them in the instruction of the Lord, which is very important because if you're disciplining the kid for sin, they should know what is sin. They should know the instruction of the Lord. And so what is the instruction of the Lord? Your entire Bible is the instruction of the Lord. This is the entire counsel of God. Every Christian home should be raising up their children in the entire counsel of God. That is 
the way for us to parent and raise our children. So I know many, many in this room, you, your kids have already moved out, and so you can't really do much about it at this point. But many in this room, you might still have kids at home. My exhortation to you based on the word of God is don't let your kids leave the home before they've heard the entire Bible in your home. Amen. Encourage your kids to read the Bible when they come of an age where they can. Raise them up in the entire instruction of the Lord. Well, if you haven't uh, already noticed this, each of these verses is pointing us to another element of wisdom that touches on a different area of our lives. Verse seven then says this, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Now, this is a, an interesting verse. Uh, sometimes we see in Proverbs, there is wisdom and there is foolishness, and it's not always a direct correlation with righteousness and sin. And this is an example of that. Uh, is it sin to get in debt? No. That's not the point. Now, can it lead you down potentially a path of sin? Yes, if you get in greater and greater debt, people tend to make poor, poorer and poorer uh, choices when they fall deeper and deeper in debt. It can lead to that point. And so this is saying, debt is not a good thing to have in your life. You don't have to even believe in the word of God to know that that's true. We don't want debt. Debt is not the thing that you should want in your life. You should not easily get into debt. And if you are in debt, you should try and pay it off. That would be the wise approach. Again, being debt-free doesn't make you more righteous. It's just this is wisdom. Verse eight then says this, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity and the rod of his fury will fail. In other words, if you, if you live wickedly, if you are living a life of wickedness and you are sowing injustice, eventually what goes around comes around the wickedness that you are sowing will eventually be sown in you. And so if you live, let's say, with a wickedness that is particularly violent, eventually, you, as you make others your victim, you will become a victim of your own violence, is the idea here. What goes around comes around. This falls in line with what we see throughout Proverbs, that the path of foolishness, of wickedness, leads to destruction. Verse 9 then says this, Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. This verse is about generosity. If you have a bountiful eye, if, if you have a giving eye towards others, you share with others. And in the way it's said here is you share your bread with the poor. And we can understand that to be more than just bread. It can be time, it can be energy, it can be resources, it can be money. And there's a blessing that comes with generosity. Well, what is that blessing? It's not a monetary one. We don't receive, you know, a, a refund for giving money or, or food to, to the poor. So what is the blessing that comes with that? Well, first, it's the blessing of, that we see of, of verse one, of a reputation, of a good name. Someone who cares for others has a good reputation. But more than that, it's the blessing of actually experiencing the love of God channeled through you to others. When you live generously, when you give of yourself to others, what you are actually experiencing is God's love for that person channeled through you. And there is no greater blessing than to experience God. 
Verse 10 then says this, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. If you've ever wondered what the source of strife and conflict is in your home or in your workplace or in your nation, it's the scoffer. It's the mocker, to use other translations of the word. Uh, It's the one who riles up others, who provokes others to anger. And so what's the solution to ending strife? It's driving out the scoffer. Now, this is going to be difficult to do if you're married to the scoffer, right? (laughs) This is difficult to do if you are raising up the scoffer and they still live with you. This is difficult to do when when you are a peer-level employee with the scoffer. You're not the boss. You can't just fire that person, right? So, So what is the solution here? Well, first, it's recognizing, all right, the source of strife is this person. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's someone else. And then let's change that. Let's change that behavior. Let's drive out the scoffing character within that person. I'm not saying that's easy to do, but it's something we should strive for, especially within the home, especially within the Christian home. Verse 11 says this, he who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. One of the things, again, that's great about Proverbs is there are these nuggets of wisdom. You could be poor at speech and you are not a worse person for it, all right? You're not, and what I mean by worse, you're not a more sinful person. But there's this wisdom here that we all can recognize if you have good speech, pure speech, this will actually make your name greater. You can use this for the advancement of the kingdom of God in so many ways. Good speech is something to strive for. You should go home today and you should research how many working words in the vocabulary of William Shakespeare there were and how many working words are in our vocabulary. We are losing our words. We are losing our vocabulary at a rapid rate. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but for William Shakespeare, it's like 40,000. And for us, it's like 10,000, all right? There's something great to be said for good speech, even so much so that you can be the friend of the king what does that mean to be friends of the king? It means you, you are able to speak well enough to stand in places where kings stand, to speak with, with people of, of, of high stature, if that makes sense. Again, this is not a call to righteousness looks like being able to speak well, but it is wise for us to pursue good, pure speech. Verse 12 then says, The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. And I I love this verse because I I have this, um, this, I guess, theology of God that he is perfect in all things, that he is the ultimate source of all knowledge. And that without God, if you remove God from the equation of anything, you don't understand God or you don't understand the subject that you're studying. You'll miss certain elements of it. God is the protector of truth. And so anytime the world or someone within the world speaks falsehoods against the truth, you know, spins a lie and creates a narrative that isn't true, what this is telling us is that God will expose the lie. If you've ever studied the history of how the world has tried to disprove the Bible, not in current times, because those, those lies haven't been exposed yet, 
But if you've studied how the world has tried to use archeology span to disprove the Bible, or science, or history, what you will find is throughout the ages, the history ends up catching up to what the Bible says. The archeology span ends up catching up to what the Bible says. The science ends up catching up to what the Bible says. One of my favorite examples of this is about 100 years ago, common popular scientific belief was that the universe was eternal. It had always existed. There was no beginning to the universe. And this concretely disproved the Bible because God in the beginning in Genesis 1 creates everything with a beginning. Well, if that, if that is the case, well, that can't fit with the theory that the universe has always existed. And then atheist scientists discovered that the universe was expanding. And it threw that theory out and they had to create a new one. And we now know that new one to be called the Big Bang. What happens every time there is a lie against what the Bible says, it gets disproven. Why does that happen? Because ultimately God in his power is the keeper of truth. That's why no matter what lies you hear in this life, it's going to be revealed as false one day. We can rest in that. The last verse is the reason that I chose to do 13 verses. I had to get to this verse. And so I'll just read it to you. You already heard it earlier. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Well, this is kind of a unique proverb. Uh, it's obviously a bit different from the, the 12 that we just read. Uh, there's actually kind of a little story going on here. Uh, there's a, there's a, a narrator and then a person speaking within this one verse. And what's it saying? Well, it's saying the sluggard does this sort of thing. The sluggard makes this kind of an excuse for why they're not doing what they should be doing, going to work or, or whatever. There's a, lion in the, there's a lion outside, I shall be killed in the streets. It's trying to highlight that this is a ridiculous excuse. If you fear a lion outside, you can't do anything. You're never gonna be able to go anywhere. You're always going to be having this excuse for anything you don't wanna do. And so how, how should we take this verse today? Because we're not really too worried about lions outside in Colorado, right? maybe some mountain lions somewhere, but not, not too much, unless you have chickens at home. But how should we understand this? What, what, what is the application with this verse? Well, first and foremost, this can apply to our everyday lives. If you find yourself making excuses for not doing the basic things that you're responsible for doing, you should ask yourself, why do, why do I make these excuses? Am I a, a sluggard? Am I a lazy person? Is that okay? The Bible seems to treat it as not okay. Being lazy is, is seen as actually hand in hand with being foolish. It's, it's not a, a good way of life. As a Christian, how, how should we understand this in the context of our spiritual discipline in our walk with God? Uh, have you ever said to yourself, I just don't have time to read the Bible today. I'm too busy. I just don't have time to make it to church today. I'm too busy. I just don't have time to pray and gather with my fellow Christians. I'm too busy. Have you made excuses for why you don't have enough time to be in relationship with 
the God of this universe who you should have a healthy fear of. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. If you find that the making excuses that are not really legitimate excuses and you alone know that they're not legitimate is why you don't do the things that you know you should do, stop. Stop making those excuses. Choose to be a disciplined person who follows the Lord God, who, who's productive in life. So you heard 13 verses, and there were 13 points. We talked about our reputation and how it's more valuable than our actual physical wealth. We talked about who we are before God. Our actual value before God has nothing to do with our money. We talked about prudence and how we should live as people who do not give in to perversion. We talked about humility and having a right understanding of who we are before God matters. We talked about perversion and, and the, the evils of perversion that can destroy. We talked about parenting, godly parenting, with the counsel of God as ultimately the guidance for that. We talked about debt. We talked about wickedness and its destructive path. We talked about generosity. We talked about strife and how to, how to root it out. We talked about speech. We talked about truth. We talked about laziness. 13 many little messages. And that's just one example. If you take and you open the book of Proverbs and you read it one verse at a time, there is so much wisdom in Proverbs. And that is the point of Proverbs. If you go all the way back to chapter one, the point is told to us in the first five verses to gain wisdom and understanding. We as Christians should all desire wisdom as we will see through, if you read the entire book of Proverbs, what you will see is there's pretty much every single aspect of your life, you are either making a wise or a foolish choice. Every decision you make is either a wise or a foolish choice. And we don't typically think that way, but that's true. And you might say, well, David, what if I'm washing the dishes? What's the, where's the wisdom and foolishness in that? Well, it depends on the moment. If you're choosing to wash the dishes as an escape from the family that you need to be showing love to at that moment, that's a foolish choice. If you're choosing to wash the dishes because you need to take care of your home and there's not that other need at the moment, well, that's a wise choice. Every single choice you make, every single part of your life, you can either choose the wise choice or the foolish choice. And some choices have major repercussions and some have minor ones. And so we as Christians should always be desiring and striving for and seeking to understand the wise choices. Where do we get our source for that? Not just the book of Proverbs, but the entire Bible. And more than that, the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he came in the first incarnation and he came to earth, he showed us the perfect way to live with complete, perfect wisdom, Christ revealed to us the example of how we should live this life. And he took his disciples on the night that he was gonna be betrayed and he counseled them to remember him when, we, when they gathered together and to do so in this way, taking bread. He said, this is my body given for you. Take this in remembrance of me. And taking the cup, he said, this is my blood given for you. Take this in remembrance of me.
And so as we take of the Lord's Supper today, I pray that we can do so as as people who genuinely desire to live wisely, 